Hi, welcome to 1823 Podcast. This is where we have interesting chats with interesting people from Liverpool John Moores University. I'm Stuart Arrowsmith. This is episode three, Meditation, Manson and Martin Luther. We're talking about the Beatles' White Album at 50. For it to become known as the White Album, it's kind of got an an enigmatic uh, feel to it. You know, the blankness of the sleeve helps you to think about the record in, in, in any way you choose, you know. I understand why it's a mess and I think it's a, I, I kind of like things that are a mess and things that are a bit broken and not really into perfection. These are people who've come from Liverpool and they're trying to inspire people in America to, to keep trying. There is hope for better race relations. This is a particular meditation approach that is rooted in Hinduistic meditation traditions and it has been popularized by Maharishi, the guru the Beatles met in India. This is 1823 Podcast. The record was released in November 1968, a double album, 30 songs, a running time of 95 minutes. Songs which deal with childhood, civil rights and the Maharishi. Imaginary characters like Desmond and Molly Jones and Rocky Raccoon, along with references to real-life figures from Chairman Mao and Sir Walter Raleigh to John Lennon's late mother and Paul McCartney's pet sheepdog. Its official title is The Beatles, but its iconic plain white cover means it's universally referred to as simply The White Album. As it turns 50 years old, we'll discuss its musical and cultural significance, explore the origins of one of its most enduring songs, and find out more about The Beatles. Beatles' interest in meditation in this period. I'm joined first by Jeff Young, a lecturer in creative writing at LJMU. Jeff's also a screenwriter and playwright, whose works include the BBC drama When Elvis Met the Beatles, based on the legendary meeting in Bel Air in 1965. Jeff, thanks for joining us. I know you've immersed yourself in the White Album ready for this chat. How do you feel about it as it reaches 50? <laughs> I, still f- I still feel very uh, kind of conflicted about it, to be honest. Um, okay. I've warmed to parts of it a bit more over the last few weeks of over listening to it um i i understand that it's an iconic uh, album and it's 50th anniversary and that and that that's an that's an important anniversary culturally uh, i still struggle with it as, as a as a piece <laughs> as a piece of work so i've tried to think about it in different ways about what it actually is as a piece of art you know i think my bottom feeling is that it's a bit of a mess you know mm-hmm. <laughs> um but I can play with that in my mind and think about it in, in you know, in different ways, really, mm-hmm. as a piece of art, you know. And partly, it's like, you know, what one of the things that was like a, um, which I only recently discovered, was that it, its original title was A Doll's House, and that made an awful lot of sense. It uh, does, to doesn't me. it? Um, I, I, I'd been thinking of it as kind of like. Um, a junk room in a house, you know, the, the record itself, it's almost like a junk room where people have discarded various bits and pieces mm. that they're not quite sure what to do with, you know. Everyone's got that, the attic or the cellar. In, I'd kind of, like, framed the White Album in my head as that, as, as a junk room or a junk shop, you know. Detritus, bits and pieces, broken things, uh, discarded things. 
I understand why it's a mess and I think it's a, I, I kind of like things that are a mess and things that are a bit broken I'm not really into perfection so I'm a bit warmer towards it now <laughs> okay. well they were in an interesting place in 68 weren't they the Beatles I mean the drama that you wrote was based in 1965 that's yeah. only three years previous yeah. to the White Album but it They've gone through so much, and so much has changed in that period. Yeah, when they, when I was writing the um, the Beatles meet, meeting Elvis drama, um, I I'd originally wanted uh, to call it when the Fabs met the King, because uh, they were still the Fab Four, you know, they were still the Mop Tops, um, and particularly George, they were kids, you know, they're in America. I think it was the second time they're in was it in America. And they got the opportunity to go and meet their hero. Um, very soon after that, they 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 in different ways they're forced to be grown ups. You know, they become adults, um, and that's through lots of different things. That's through you know the tragedy of Brian dying. Um, that's Brian Epstein, the manager. Brian Epstein, yeah. Uh, and the the kind of when they found out that Brian was dead, and they were in Bangor with Maharishi. And the news um, comes through that Brian has died, and you can see it on their faces. You can see the photographs when they when they find out, mm-hmm. and they're white. You know, they're ashen. They're shocked. And it, it, I, I I kind of thought think of of Brian almost like their stepfather, you know, or a custodian. And then suddenly they've got to grow up, and they grow up through lots of different ways. They grow up through the absence of Brian. They grow up through harder drugs. They grow up through. Uh, the dynamics of the band itself, the frictions and tensions in the band, and they grow up up through being like at the forefront of of the counterculture. In some ways, the album is a portrait of that disintegration. You know, if Brian had still been alive, I think they might have, they might have just started to disintegrate, or it could have been more methodical, more methodical kind of career. You know, being marketed as a as a pop group mm-hmm. maybe. But by now they're a rock group, and they're a rock group who very publicly are seen to be drug users, and uh, and they, they start to express their opinions. Lennon particularly, you know, um, I think through a kind of empathy with the counterculture, um, political opinions, um, ostensibly revolutionary opinions, but on the album itself he can't quite address it. Mm-hmm. You know, I think he has things to say. He has things to say in interviews and off-record on the album. He shies away from talk of revolution and I think it's I think another thing that's important is that revolution is going on in the world these years 68 69 um, events are happening all over the place Paris Chicago convention um, they were with the Maharishi mm-hmm. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know Lenin wasn't at, on the barricades mm-hmm. in Paris uh, the tanks are rolling into Prague people are being assassinated Mm-hmm. Martin Luther King, uh, Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy. Somehow out of chaos, emotional, personal chaos and global chaos comes a, comes a record that is chaotic. Yeah. And the discord of the White Album seems to fit 1968 in a way that the, the optimism and the psychedelia of Sgt Pepper suited 1967. Yeah, you know, it's like there's paranoia in the, in the mix, um, there's all these kind of coded songs, you know. You've got you've got "Sexy Sadie," which which become which becomes apparently you know a criticism of the Maharishi. 
you've got Blackbird, which is about the civil rights movement. So they are they are talking about political things. Um, there's two songs on the album with revolution in the title, you know, and one of one of them is like saying "Count me out," <laughs> and the other one is like an avant-garde, cut-up, uh, you know, kind of Stockhouse and William Burroughs uh, sound art piece. You know, it's got the word revolution. So in its way, in in a way, to stick that to stick that piece of sound art on a pop record, in a way that kind of is revolutionary. You know, I think it comes out of like lots of difficulties mm. and. Uh, and difficult, difficulty post Brian with being the Fabs. We can't be the Fab Four anymore, you know. And that leads to a kind of incoherence. Whatever, whatever it is that they want to say, they can't quite find the way to say it. So that's how you end up with what's well, kind of like a scrapbook or that box in the attic, you know, full of junk. And the darkness of the White Album is kind of enhanced by its legacy as well, particularly with Charles Manson. He hears he thinks messages in these songs which he then uses uh, as a reason to carry out the the notorious murders in California in 69 so that unfortunately becomes part of the legacy of the album as well doesn't it you can't talk about the white album without bringing Manson into it yeah you think um I suppose I don't know you kind of think like what would what difference how different would would the whole experience of the white album be without Manson you know if Manson hadn't Ridiculously misinterpreted those songs as co- as co- as these uh, calls to to slaughter, mm. you know. It's it's inevitably coloured by uh, the killing of Sharon Tate and so on, uh, and his misinterpretation of of these songs. You know, we think of it as in a way it's like a post Charles Manson record, mm. <laughs> and and uh, so that 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 kind of puts a particular taint on it. You know, but that makes it seem darker. You know, yeah. I think. He mentioned a number of songs, Revolution 1 and Revolution 9, Piggies, and particularly Helter Skelter. Mm. And at his murder trial, Manson said, it's not my conspiracy, it's not my music, I hear what it relates. It says rise, it says kill. Why blame it on me? Yeah, he's, so who, whose fault, who's fault is this? <laughs> mm. it's, it's, it's their fault, you know. So, I, I, I mean, what must that have been like for them to live with that, you know, uh, when the news breaks that he... Charles Manson is using these songs as, as as calls to his interpretation of revolution, you know, mm-hmm. which is racist and and murderous. What what was that like for them, for the Beatles, to, to know that this had happened? You know, um, I think you know what the other thing is like that white sleeve, which which I think you can read anything into and you can put you, your own interpretation of the record in. It's almost like that white sleeve is a canvas, and then. And so, and in a way, Charles Manson painted onto the canvas his his dark vision, you know, mm-hmm. of what was inside the records, you know, and um, we we think it's darker than it actually was, you know. I think because of, because of Charles Manson. Eighteen twenty three podcast. We've touched on the range of subjects which inspired and influenced the songs on the White Album. I'd like to dig a little bit deeper into that now. And my presenter's privilege means that we're going to talk about my favourite song on the album, and that's Blackbird. It was composed by Paul McCartney in early 1968, and he recorded it alone in Abbey Road Studios, seven days before he turned 26, 
half a century later. It's still a staple in his live set. McCartney was inspired to write the song by the American Civil Rights Movement. The lyrics, you were only waiting for this moment to be free, take these broken wings and learn to fly, were a message of support and encouragement to black people in the US. McCartney says the blackbird is a metaphor for a black woman in Little Rock. I'd like to explore now what was happening in the US in 1968 to prompt McCartney to write the song and what was the significance of a songwriter from Liverpool tackling this particular subject. Dr Andrea Livesey is a senior lecturer in US history at LJMU. Andrea, thanks for coming in to chat with us. Could you set the scene for us, give us some context? What was the the state of race relations in the US in 1968? Well, 1968 was really a hinge point in American history. We've got the context of the um, rising opposition to the Vietnam War. We've got two prominent assassinations, uh, Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King Jr. But then we've got this increasingly impatient civil rights movement in the wake of the assassination of Dr. King. But what I think is really important to remember here, and especially for the song, as you said, he he wrote it with a black woman in mind, mm-hmm. is the fact that we've got the rise of, of second wave feminism along with the civil rights movement. So while we often hear about the prominent male leaders of the civil rights movement, so for example, Martin Luther King, uh, Malcolm X, Stokely Carmichael, We should remember that black women had a huge role to play in the civil rights movement too. Women like Angela Davis, Rosa Parks, Fannie Lou Hamer, these are all women who had a really significant role in the civil rights movement. And this filtered down um, to women who were involved at the lower levels, at the grassroots. So all of these different elements coming together in 1968 created that unique context um, for a song like this to be written. Yeah, 1968 in history seems to be quite a tumultuous year with so many things going on. And you mentioned the Martin Luther King assassination. We have Mm -hmm. the Black Power salute at the Olympic Games. Did all of that accelerate race relations on the agenda and and in people's awareness, do you think? On the agenda, yes. But in reality, there had always been a fight back from African-Americans as they became known in this era. So black Americans, even since the Civil War, had been aware of their own position in American society. And there were always prominent black leaders who were fighting uh, racial injustice in American society. But it was this movement, um, especially with youth movements and the counterculture of the 1960s, that created that climate where a really powerful civil rights movement could emerge. Yeah. You mentioned the Civil War. That ended, what, just over 100 years before this period. And even though the Confederate states were defeated and slavery was ultimately abolished, black people in America never got the freedoms that they probably expected to get. How how did things evolve after that towards 1968? Yes, we've got um, a long lead-up to 1968. So the Civil War ended in 1865 with a series of three Reconstruction Amendments. Uh, These promised African Americans freedom, citizenship and the right to vote. Uh, But the promise of this period just after the Civil War that we call the Reconstruction period just did not ring true. Black Americans continued to experience intense 
racial prejudice that continued to get worse up until the early 20th century when we have what have become known as the Jim Crow laws, Mm. um, primarily in the southern states that had previously held enslaved people. These Jim Crow laws legalised segregation and discrimination on the basis of race. But these laws uh, were not just a, a legal framework. They were underscored by social and racial etiquettes that had been there since the beginning of American society. So historians in America have talked about race as a kind of kaleidoscope through which Americans see the world Mm -hmm. Um, and it was when black Americans stepped outside of this racial etiquette that they had the backlash so we have violent responses lynchings by white Americans when black Americans acted in a way that they didn't expect them to I'm really interested in in the fact that a young man from Liverpool chooses to write a song in 1968 in support of black people in America. Given Liverpool's history, it's quite widespread support for the Confederate States 100 years earlier. Mm. Um, Where did that stem from in Liverpool? Well, this is where it gets really interesting for me as a historian of Atlantic slavery. Everything that was happening in the 20th century in relation to the civil rights movement goes back to how race developed in America and how ideas of race and racism developed along with slavery. At the beginning of the Atlantic slave trade, so we're talking here, um, well, mainly from the 16th century, it was London and Bristol that dominated the African trade. So it was um, slave ships from London and Bristol that would travel down to Africa, um, trade for African people and and take them as enslaved people to the Americas. However, as we move towards the 1750s, it's Liverpool that begins to dominate the trade. By the close of the legalised Atlantic slave trade in 1807, almost three quarters of the European slave trading voyages, not just British, uh, but European slave trading voyages were leaving from Liverpool. So you can really start to understand how significant a role Liverpool played in the Atlantic slave trade and in the subjugation of African people throughout the Atlantic world. Liverpool grew incredibly rich through the profits Mm. of the slave trade. And if you just walk around the city today, you can see that. You can see that around the Albert Docks. You can see that in the financial quarter. You can see that on the town hall, where you have images of African faces, um, you know, a a hint of where Liverpool gained its wealth. Um, You can see that around the university in Liverpool, John Mars here, so through the Georgian quarter in the old merchants' houses. There's incredible wealth there. But while Liverpool was growing rich, very few enslaved people themselves came to Liverpool. Um, The early African settlers in Liverpool generally came here as free people, as sailors on ships, and they would settle Mm. in the city and um, marry either local white women or Irish women that had come here in the same period. And this is what's made up that very special racial character, shall we say, of areas of Liverpool like Toxteth with historic black communities. And because it was um, a, these were marriages between um, free white and free black 
working class people, we get this quite special um, interracial working class um, racial identity that carried through really to the 20th century. Um, so while race relations in Liverpool aren't perfect, have never been perfect, and there are still significant problems today. Um, in the 1960s, when the Beatles would have been presented with the situation in America, it would have seemed something quite alien to them. Okay, this, was, this was not something that they had experienced. This kind of racial segregation was not present in Liverpool, even though the origins of American racial segregation were in the slave trade that Liverpool funded. So there's a, a strange contrast yeah. there. And we see that, don't we, when the Beatles first go to America, that they're presented with contracts which would require them to play before segregated audiences, and they refuse to sign them because that's not something that they're used to here, and it's not something that, that matches their values. Mm, absolutely. And especially when we see um, Ringo Starr, for example, who came from um, working class communities, Dingle, um, just on the outskirts of um, Liverpool's black community in Toxteth. That would have been something completely alien to them. Um, but what I think is really interesting is the way with Blackbird, Paul McCartney said himself that it was written as a message to black women experiencing these problems in the States. Let us encourage you to keep trying, to keep your faith. There is hope. So that's really significant, isn't it? If you think, well, these are people who've come from Liverpool and they're trying to inspire people in America to, to keep trying. There is hope for um, you know, better race relations there um, without any real um, acknowledgement of the history of where they've come from yes. themselves. Again, it's just a really interesting contrast. Liverpool's history in the Civil War we've talked about a little bit, but of course we have this fascinating incident that one of the most significant moments of the American Civil War happens here on the Mersey. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So um, while the Civil War started in 1861 in the American South, few know that the final surrender of the Civil War was actually in the River Mersey, and that was of the ship, the CSS Shenandoah, which in November of 1865 made its final surrender in the UK rather than in the United States where they would have had to face different consequences. But again this is a uh, part of a long running connection that Liverpool as a city has with uh, the Confederate states or the southern states of America um, and America as a whole. Um, during the Civil War the Confederates soon realized that they didn't have um, the naval strength to fight the Union, the Union Army, who were in the North. Um, so they made use of their existing merchant links in Liverpool to build ships. So we have the Shenandoah, we have the Alabama, another really famous ship being built here in Liverpool. But another little known fact in relation to this is that at the end of the Civil War, the United States government, in fact, sued the British government for three million pounds for the role that Liverpool had played in building those ships 
for the Confederacy. Um, so the US held Liverpool and the British government in turn directly um, accountable for prolonging the American Civil War. This is 1823 Podcast. That's Dr Andrea Livesey. Now, almost half of the songs on the White Album were composed while the Beatles were in India in early 1968. The origins of this trip can be traced back to the previous year. At the suggestion of George Harrison, the Beatles met with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, an Indian guru who taught transcendental meditation. After that initial lecture in London, the Beatles travelled to Bangor in North Wales to attend a 10-day seminar hosted by the Maharishi. The Beatles' stay was cut short when they learned of the death of their manager Brian Epstein at the age of just 32. The band pledged to visit the Maharishi again when their work commitments would allow to learn more about transcendental meditation, or TM. And so in February 1968, the Beatles and their partners travelled to India, an ashram in Rishikesh beneath the Himalayas by the shore of the Ganges. But what exactly were they learning? How would meditation help them, and how does it help us today? I went along to chat to Dr. Peter Malinowski, a reader in cognitive neuroscience at LJMU, to find out more. And I started by asking him, what exactly is transcendental meditation? This is a particular meditation approach that is rooted in Hinduistic meditation traditions. And it has been popularized by Maharishi. This was the guy, the the guru, the Beatles met in in India. Yes. And then, based on the on the interest they had in this, actually it be, it became quite popular and and moved to the West and became a big meditation movement also in the West. Is TM different to other forms of meditation then, and other kind of mindfulness techniques that have developed over the years? Yes, it's uh, it's it's a little bit difficult to really get precise information uh, how the meditation looks like. They keep it quite close to the chest. Right. I think it's a, it looks like it is a business model to do it in this way that they they have this approach. TM they, they like to make big claims, so they they're the best. They're the the easiest. They are not spiritual although they have these hindu gods i don't know quite how this goes together but and also there is a bit of research about it unfortunately and i don't i think they do themselves a bit of uh, disservice there that they overstate many of the claims and have been actually at the beginning when i started getting involved in meditation research there was a, a huge rejection against anything related to meditation in the scientific community in particular because there were so huge claims coming from from TM that meditation changes all kinds of things, although the scientific evidence wasn't really there. This was at the beginning a problem, and then the, the mindfulness movement started, which from the start was rooted in a, in a scientific approach. So, and, and mindfulness is, I would say, a psychological um, version of simple Buddhist meditation practices and they they differ from TM meditation but now actually the focus within within psychology and within the, the scientific research around meditation has shifted a lot towards uh, mindfulness meditation and to end away from TM and I think that's partially related to the business model and so on that that they have and that they just overstate the, uh, 
the benefits and the, and the claims are too big what they make and their mind, mindfulness approaches tend to be a bit more careful with this. And here we are 50 years after mm. the Beatles really popularised meditation and it's now so embedded in our culture, isn't it, With from mm. schools upwards. Why do we meditate? What do we get out of it? Well, I, I think there people have different reasons for doing this, but the, the way how it now really entered in, into our culture in this in this general way is probably mainly as an approach to deal with stress. Mm-hmm. Not exclusively, but if, if in particular if we are looking at these these secular approaches in the workplace, in the schools, and within the health system, and and also in the in the prison or uh, prison system, it also comes in there more and more. There, it is really primarily a, 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 to to develop a better approach towards one's own one's own stress. And as we know, stress is not a, an objective phenomenon, but there are some some outer stresses, but then it's how we respond to this. And through meditation, we get, uh, especially through mindfulness meditation, we get more space to respond to stressors in a more appropriate way. I think this is probably the the main benefit. And, and then as knock-on effects, we develop more resilience, more psychological flexibility, and and basically are able to to adjust our our responses to what is happening in a more meaningful way. Outer responses, how we re- interact with the world, but importantly also inner responses so that we can step out of, out of all the rumination processes and, and things mm-hmm. like this that usually would pull us down and reduce our well-being and so on. Yes. Um, and what about the impact on our physical well-being as well? What what difference can that make? Yes, actually this is, this is now also um, becoming more and more evident that research starts showing that mindfulness meditation actually influences, let's say, all the physiological aspects related to the stress response. It, it can improve our immune system and, and in general, the, uh, balance our, um, all the aspects related to, to, to the physiological stress response, yeah, like mm-hmm. the, the st- stress hormones, how... how how physiologically we we react to stress and how for how long stre- the stress hormones are elevated and and things like this. So the evidence is there more and more that so in general everything related to this physiological stress response is improved. Probably this has an impact on on our cardiovascular health. It looks like, and then it, this is a little bit uh, less direct, but. Through changes in the psychological mechani- mechanisms, we think actually that also we have better skills, we gain better skills to influence in general our health-related behavior. So this this can be our eating behavior. We, we just have a project running at the moment looking at physical activity. If it's Everyone knows it's useful to be physically mm. active, but the question is how do we put this knowledge into practice? And there... Be, being more mindful actually can we think it can make a difference so we are investigating this at the moment there is research linking it to um, the treatment of addictions you know yes. in, of all kinds of smoking alcohol and, and and other other addictions some people start looking at the link or the usefulness for or gambling addiction as well so it looks like not that it is a panacea but if it is used in, in the right way within the psychological context also not as a 
I think it's worth emphasizing, not as a standalone thing, but mm. integrated into a therapeutic approach, then actually it can really make a difference. Yes. How do we meditate, if that's not too simple a question? Um, so, there. first of all, it's it's good to, to emphasize there are many different ways of meditating. So, But it, now we, we were talking about, in particular, about, let's say, secular um, mindfulness meditation. And and there the the main thing is that actually we first of all we decide to focus on an object, and in many cases this will be the breath. There are some good reasons for it. It's it's relatively subtle. So if we try to experience our breath as the uh, air streams in and out at our nostrils, we really have to pay attention. Yeah, so this paying attention is a very important aspect, but it's not enough. We can pay attention in a functional or in a dysfunctional way. And then the other aspect, I would say, is the attitude. How do we relate to our experiences? So the sensation of the breath at the, at the nose, for instance, but it can also be at the chest, or how we can also observe the, the lifting and sinking of the abdomen, and so there are many ways of doing this. But having this object helps us to stay focused, so we have something we can hold on to, let's say, or or an anchor for for our attention, our mind, and then with this anchor or reference point, we are able to experience more clearly all the other things that are going on in our mind. Yes, yeah? so that our mind wanders off, has some ideas about the past, about the future, and or some impulses are coming up, and the exercise is just to always come back to the object, to the breath. Always come back, so recognize what is going on and come back. Not with, without rejecting what distracted us, what, where our mind went, but just to gently let it go and return to, to where we were before. And it, it sounds like a very, very simple exercise, but it's extremely powerful. So we, do, we try to do this in a relatively calm environment, calm situation where we really practice this. It's a bit like going to a mental gym. Yeah. Mm. It's, I mean, it, it's not about running on the treadmill. It's not about pushing the, the weights up, but it helps our body to get, get fitter. And here this helps our mind to get fitter so that also in more, more challenging situations, if our boss has to tell us something important <laughs> so that we don't want to hear, or then actually that we are able to recognize our impulses. So maybe some rage is um, boiling up in, inside us or so, and then are able to resp um, deal with this in a more flexible way, not by suppressing it, not by uh, not wanting it to be there, but by having more uh, a more dynamic and more flexible response available. Mm. And so that takes discipline as well, doesn't it? This sounds like something that you'd have to practice to, to be able to do it effectively. Yes, yes. It's it's not something we can we can just switch on, but it also isn't, I would say, isn't too demanding. From our own research and also from my own experience of having meditated for quite a few years, it is clear that actually if we manage more or less regularly to, to practice just... 10 minutes a day for of this simple mindful breath awareness mm -hmm. practice then after a few weeks we we will see already differences positive differences we have seen this in in brain activity and so on. after 3 weeks changes to the to this impulsive responding so it it's quite convincing and but i think the main thing is to maintain some regularity that's dr peter malinowski i'm still joined by jeff young and 
Jeff, I know you've been looking through the track list and, and picking out your, your favourite songs from the album. Which ones really stand out for you creatively? <laughs> I've, managed to, oh, well, I've managed to get it down to six. Uh, I'm not sure which order. I think it's undeniable that Blackbird is a really beautiful song. I think that must be one of McCartney's most beautiful melodies, you know. Um, so that would be on my list. Um, I love Helter Skelter. Uh, I think it's like this noise, this blistering noise, you know. That's like I think that's, you know, it's like it's like a, an electric shock almost. The energy, you know, mm-hmm. and. And Paul McCartney wrote it. <laughs> so you've gone from his Blackbird, this beautiful, beautiful melody, to this noise, this primal energy, you know. So that thing, that's really interesting. Um, I'm from the punk era, so Susie and the Banshees doing Helter Skelter matters, you know. If they chose that song and they weren't, they weren't uh, ridiculing it, they were celebrating it, you know. And I think that's important. They covered... Uh Dear Prudence, Dear I think, Prudence. from the same album as well, didn't they? Dear Prudence is on my list. Um, I think that's a beautiful song. I think that might be, um, I think that might be one one of Lennon's most uh, beautiful songs. Um, I kind of like, even though I think it feels like a, a, a rough first draft. I do like uh, Everybody's Got Something to Hide except for me and my monkey. I love the ridiculousness of the title. <laughs> um, Sexy Sadie's interesting, and I think that I think there's a bit of backstory there. You know, apparently it was like a, a, a kind of a critique of the Maharishi. And then, but my very favourite song on the whole album is um, "Happiness Is a Warm Gun," mm. and that would be the one that I would take away from it if you could only take one song from it, you know, and abandon the rest. But I think it's a really interesting song, and in a way. I think that might be my favourite Beatles song. You know, I struggle. I do struggle with the Beatles mm. <laughs> through overexposure, but I just think that's a work of art. Okay, thanks for that, Jeff, and thanks for joining us on this episode of the podcast. Thanks also to Peter and Andrea for their contributions as well. Thanks to you for listening. We'll let you go away now and dig out your copies of the White Album and have another listen to it, see whether you agree with Jeff's choices as the uh, the best songs on the album. Thank you to Michael Humphreys, our producer, Ben Jones, our editor, and Ryan James, who's contributed the artwork. Thanks again to you for listening, and we hope that you'll check out some of our other episodes. 1823 Podcast.